0: Open your mouth and take a look in the mirror, no don't worry I'm not about to give you a grilling on your dental hygiene but tucked away inside your mouth you'll find millions of taste receptors. These tiny taste buds are there to detect flavour, specifically they can pinpoint 5 different types of flavours, the sweet, sour, bitter, salty and my favourite, the one that lots of people forget, umami. In this episode, I'm putting the umami flavors in the spotlight by showing you how we blacken some of our ingredients using a highly sophisticated method to create brand new products. And I'm joined by the one and only Andy Oliver, who's making her first visit to my restaurant to talk food, heritage, and of course, great British menu.
1: Don't try to make the most exciting thing in the world. Try to make the most delicious thing in the world. Try to make the thing that makes you happy, and that will bear itself out on the plate.
0: My name is Tommy Banks and this is my podcast, Seasoned. Every week you get to experience life behind the scenes at my Michelin-starred restaurant, The Black Swan, and my farm where much of the menu is grown. It's April the 19th and this is Seasoned, Episode 9, Andy Oliver and Black Apples. Before we begin, I want to say a thank you to our sponsors. This podcast is only possible because of True Foods, True Foods an incredible family business who make the best stocks and sauces. True Foods provide stocks to some of the best kitchens in the UK. One, two and three Michelin-style restaurants use their stocks as the base for their recipes. And now, their stocks and sauces are available for you to buy at home too. I'll tell you more about them later in the episode, but you can check out their product range and find lots more information in our show notes. It's been a few weeks now since I invited listeners to get in touch with any questions, feedback, or comments about the show, and you've sent plenty of them in. We've had some requests for us to serve the Purple Parachute Cocktail, which I cooked up with Mel a couple of weeks ago as a permanent addition to our drinks list. And lots of you wanted to see some pictures of the braised beef cruffin that Clara helped to make in last week's episode. And don't forget, if you have any comments or questions about the series or anything you'd like us to cover or questions you'd like to answer in a future episode, you can email us on seasoned at tommybanks.co.uk. This week has been a really busy one at the Black Swan. The restaurant has been pretty full every night and Chef Callum has been working on a few new dishes. We've made a beautiful um, sourdough marmite using our leftover sourdough which we've been drizzling over our whipped butter which goes with our bread course. And also Callum's been working on a new uh, fish dish as well which is a beautiful piece of brill which we steamed and stuffed with a mousse laced with our oyster leaves which uh, is a great ingredient that we grow in the garden. And uh, something that's available at this time of year finally. On the farm it's all systems go. We're up to about 40 newborn lambs and our lambing season has overlapped with the last of the calves to be born too. So my dad and Christy, all the farm team, they're working night and day to make sure everything goes smoothly. I mean it's always busy being a farmer but the last few weeks have been on a different level. And of course there's a small matter of the Abbey Inn opening just a few weeks away which everyone is chipping in to help with. We're buying new furniture, getting the whole interior stripped back and redecorated. The kitchen goes in next week, which I'm particularly excited about. Uh, We've been doing a bit of landscaping out the front as well to get a whole new look. And the website's just gone live just after I started recording. So hopefully some people have booked. So yeah, it's been a crazy busy time. I guess business as usual, but with one very special guest in the mix as well. I've said before that my chef in career really took off thanks to a little TV show called Great British Menu. Appearing on that series brought me to the attention of many of you, and overnight my restaurant became, well, much more in demand, so I owe a lot to that show. And it's fair to say that there's someone in the GBM family that I'm sure appreciative of. The host and face of the show, and someone I can honestly call a friend, Andy Oliver. But despite years of invites I've never managed to get Andy trying out my food in my own restaurant so I thought I'd invite her up to take part in the podcast and see everything we have going on. Andy, Andy, it's lovely it's to have you here. here.
1: I can't believe I finally got here, Tommy
0: Banks. I can't either, I thought you were never going to come.
1: I thought I was never going to come and it was a bit touch and go last night. <laughs> but I managed to to like sort of push on through and we're here. But I've, I've hurt my arm, but I'm here anyway because I'm very fond of you, Tommy Banks.
0: I feel like we've cooked for you so many times, but never actually in our restaurant.
1: No, I've never been here. I'm really excited about it.
0: Andy always looks fantastic, but I think she might have missed the part of the invite where I told her to bring some wellies and outdoor clothes because she's turned up in the whitest trainers and a very expensive looking pair of purple trousers. But credit where it's due, she's game for a look around despite the mud.
1: And what's under all this stuff here? Uh,
0: so they're all uh, alpine strawberries, like little wild strawberries oh, that you Oh,
1: beautiful. Get. Well, they're really creamy though, mm. aren't
0: they? Delicious. And then, yeah, lots of herbs tunnel full of tomatoes at the bottom, which will be full of tomatoes and, and herbs. And,
1: and those, is that chard over there? Greens? Rhubarb. Uh, oh, rhubarb. Out, yeah, similar
0: sort of leaf, isn't it?
1: Oh, you love rhubarb. Half yeah. man, half rhubarb. That's why I
0: called you this <laughs> <yes>.
2: year. <laughs> yeah, it
0: actually runs through my, if you cut me, I, uh, rhubarb comes out. Introduce you to Dicky. So hello, Dicky.
1: Dicky a... just he broke my hand yeah. <laughs> because Dicky's got the firmest handshake you'll ever <sighs> that's encounter. That's his farm
0: life that he has. Is that what it is,
1: Dicky? Yeah, a, a northern handshake. A northern
0: handshake. <laughs> wow. Northerners are supposed to be friendly, though. When you arrived, I thought how lovely you look, and i will take yeah. you around here to see some oh, little cows.
1: Having a chat? <laughs> All a right. A uh,
0: bit, yeah. bit hungry.
1: Is that, is that what that is?
0: You see the little tiny calf there. Oh, look! So we've got oh. all the cars, but they're all a bit... Muddy. Oh, actually, we can head around. Go around convenient. that side. Andy admits that the outdoors isn't her comfort zone. She's from Suffolk originally, where there is plenty of countryside, but she's much more at home in an urban environment. So visiting my farm is a rare opportunity to get up close with nature. Although Andy almost got a bit too close.
1: Oh, they're beautiful, aren't they? Look yeah, they I just
0: love cattle. They're so chilled, aren't
1: they? There's they? a very lovely energy. All oh, the big, the massive, oh, big oh, shit they... happening. Oh, whoa, whoa, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa! I'm backing away from the avalanche. <laughs> Did you? Wow, that's some serious oh, pooing wow. there, lady. Woo! <laughs> it's <laughs> <laughs> like oh. a volcano of shit.
0: Also. Uh, the calf suckling at the same time. I so that mean, is multitasking right all
1: now. life is here. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get this in Hackney, I'll tell you. No, not really. Even in the city <laughs> farm, I've never seen a shit
0: avalanche. <laughs>
1: God, I literally am um, tingling. I'm so excited about this. Is this your palace? It is. Yeah. It palace is a palace. One, one of three. It is a palace. I mean, some people not, not, might not be as excited as I am. Wow, it smells incredible in here. It's very it vinegary, sour, doesn't it? I love vinegar, though. It smells really sour. That's I like great. sour. Yeah, absolutely. Blackcurrant and lovage jam, spruce. Oh, spruce tip honey. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. That's like got a real sort
2: of citrusy note to it. What's that? That's uh, umeboshi gooseberries. so... Bloody
1: hell! There I like umeboshi plums. Yeah,
2: exactly. That just smaller, and obviously you can eat ah, the whole
1: thing. I love gooseberries. Gooseberries are one of my favourite things because I just I like things in the Caribbean. They call it timeout, okay, which means it ties your mouth up with ah, something so sharp and sour. Okay. You can go, it makes your mouth pucker. Yeah, I love that. It's like my favourite yeah. thing. I don't even know why I like it so much. I like really like. I love those really salty wrinkly olives. Yes, yeah. You know those really wrinkly ones that are kind of like that as well.
0: There's more ferments and oils and vinegars and goodness knows what else all tucked away in here. Each one of them labelled and stored at the perfect temperature, and some of them won't emerge for years.
1: What's that nasturtium vinegar? Oh, so that's wow! The, that's the
2: flowers. Um, just infused into white wine vinegar for a week. Oh, just of, a week? Yeah, middle of summer, like August last year, It's the colour of that.
1: Oh, goodness. So bright
2: red, like Look really... Look at that, of so oh, the
1: flower, not the leaf, like got you.
2: So no, it's, it's great Flowering
1: currant vinegar.
2: Yeah, so that's from last this that. time last year. So that's your, your currant uh, bush that just flowers rather than producing berries, uh, and the blossoms are like deep, deep crimson in colour. Um, what we do with that is we make the vinegar, and then with the blossoms that come out after a week, we make like a ribena, effectively, oh, like which is the sugar and water. Yeah.
0: But there's something in here that we use a lot, which is the inspiration behind the next part of Andy's visit.
2: So, Andy, we've actually got a little task back at the uh, kitchen that we're going to work on this afternoon oh, to uh, create this little product behind me. so.
1: Black apples? Yeah. Why are they black?
2: Because they've been caramelized for about two months. Oh. So, really, really for two slowly.
0: Months. So, like so. black garlic.
1: Oh, right. Like fermented. Mm, Not exactly.
0: No. People say see that. it's fermented. It's Um, not. It's
1: not. Holy moly. Look at this.
0: So they were apples from our orchard.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Back at the restaurant, we want to give Andy a taster of four different blackened foods to see if she can spot the different flavour profiles and find out how they're made and how they're used in our cooking.
2: So Andy, we thought after we'd been in the uh, palace down at the farm, we'd come back up here and show you, uh, get you involved and do a bit of prep for us. Sure. Uh, Bramley apples, uh, which we use for the black apples. They've got quite a nice bit of acidity, obviously. Mm. Uh, and then that just carries through really nicely into the, the apple puree that we're gonna use on the, the dish tonight. So, um, yeah, let's get stuck in, do a bit of peeling. Oh, is it, is it just
1: why you peel an apple? I can do that. So these, these Bramleys, that's what makes that black apple? Exactly that, yeah. And you, so, and you literally just peel them? Yeah, so we just peel them,
2: um, and that just, obviously, it just speeds up the process a little bit, we find. Um, why do
1: they go black? What happens? It's
0: just slow caramelisation. So it's drying it up, but it's also cooking it very, very, very slowly. Very
1: slowly. That's yeah. so wild. So it's the,
0: the chemical reaction is the same is called the Maillard reaction, which people ah, have heard of. It's like when you On brown, the meat. Exactly. When you brown meat, it's all the caramelisation of protein. That crust. Exactly what that is. And that's why when you have like you see a lot of chefs use like black garlic with beef yeah. or venison or something. And it works really, really well. It's because it's the same sort of flavour in your brain is the caramelisation of oh, meat is what the black garlic is. Absolutely.
1: Interesting, Tommy Banks. Yeah. <laughs> I like that knowledge. I like to learn things. No, that is really cool. But
0: it is, because I think like I th- black garlic has become quite fashionable, hasn't it? I mean you're oh, gonna yeah. you must find this all the time, Great British menu, people just cook the same ingredients and you have to eat them every week. But like black, <laughs> black garlic, you must have had it like 50, times the last few years on yeah. the British menu.
1: Yeah, and it's, sometimes it's effective. Sometimes it disappears completely because people mm. aren't using it in the right moment or whatever. Mm. Sometimes it's like, the black guy, you can't taste it at all, or it's overly loaded. Yeah. So there's a, there's a thing with, the danger with the ingredients that become fashionable, is that people are using them because they're fashionable, mm. not because that's the flavour they want on the plate
2: what we're going to do next is we're going to cut them in half and that just kind of speeds up the process a little bit um, and then we will backpack them and keep them in the hot cupboard at 60 degrees for six to eight weeks it just depends on obviously we have a lot of different varieties of apples so it depend on the size and whatever of the apple so after that's done we'll end up with that this. there and also this real like thick sticky almost like syrup. So, so is that in the bag that's in the bag exactly which is why we do it in the bag just to, to capture that so it kind of evaporate it's almost chocolatey
0: yeah and but it's it so it of does. like a cooking apple though i think and a bit obviously the bitterness <sighs> of it being charred and black i
1: love and that it. it's bitter and sour mm. as well as really apple uh, yeah. like through it you, if you look at that you wouldn't imagine that's got gonna taste of apple no, <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <No>.
0: <laughs> it's maybe just the color but it does give me sort of balsamic vibes as well right,
1: right?
2: yeah Okay. That's lovely. So we then dehydrate them uh, at 50 degrees for 24 hours. And then you kind of get this real like sticky. It's almost like a bit of a sort of
1: date yeah. of their texture. This is amazing. Sorry, am so I might put a bit of it off?
2: Yeah, well, there's a bit there on that spoon. Oh, just, is that what this is here? Yeah.
1: Oh my God. Mm. That fudgy. Mm. Wow, that tastes incredible. It's literally like nothing else as well.
2: Yeah, you, you couldn't compare it, could you really? No,
1: but the texture is a bit fu- like sort of slightly fudgy and almost gelatinous as well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I like it here. <laughs> <laughs> we just hang around talking to you YouTube, going, ooh. What about, ooh. <laughs> well, it's so gorgeous.
0: Blackened apples are delicious. There's no getting away from it. Rich, complex, deep flavors. We use this exact product on our menu right now alongside our pork. And as good as all the other ingredients are, it's the blackened apples which bring it all together. But the idea of blackening food came from black garlic. You'll hear chefs talk about black garlic all the time. You can buy it in nice supermarkets, posh delis, if you've got a few quid to spare. In fact, though, it was me being a tight Yorkshireman and wanting the black garlic without paying top dollar prices, which really prompted us to figure out how it was made. Well, I say it was me. In fact, all thanks should go to my dad.
1: How did you know you had to dehydrate it before you'd get to that place?
0: Well, I had to figure it out. A lot of trial and error. I think the first few times we did it, we mainly just made puree because yeah. it was always very wet. And then we yep. realized if we then took it further and dried it, we could make a, a different product. First time we made these, though, was it was actually my dad who you met earlier. Yeah, He's sort of got a bit of a nutty professor sort of uh, e- energy. eccentricity <laughs> energy to him. <laughs> And I was sort of telling him because obviously black garlic is a, a staple in sort of Japanese, Korean cooking, a lot of Asian cookery. And I was sort of talking to him about it and saying, "Oh, I'd love to, I'd love to make it because we grow loads of garlic." And and to be honest, it's quite hard to showcase garlic um, when you've grown it because you can buy garlic and it's quite difficult to say, "Well, what we can do with our garlic that's yeah. really special." So I was telling him, like, "Oh, this black garlic has to be slowly cooked for like six to eight weeks at sixty degrees." And we talked about it, and then couple of months later, he just came in with this carrier bag and he was just like, there you go, black garlic.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and I opened it up and I, obviously initially it was intoxicating. And I was like, <laughs> it was just in like a supermarket carrier bag. Really and good. I was like, how, what do you do? How do you do it? And he went, oh yeah, so you sort of said 60 degrees. So I went down to Black Swan and the boiler at the back, I kind of just put my hand over it thought well, that feels about 60 degrees. So I chucked it on top of there and yeah, six weeks later it does. He said it's hard, it's like, it's hardly science, is it? It's just easy. I was like, Right, but once we knew the possibility was there, then we, we bought a cabinet to do it in so we could be a bit more controlled with it. Yeah, TB made a whole bag of the stuff with little more than a bright idea and some patience. No, I'm not suggesting you all go out there and do the same. But if you've got some spare garlic bulbs, why not? Although it's not the nicest smelling thing on your laundry. We had to turn our production line into a slightly more refined process but the end result is that we now have black garlic whenever we want it and dicky uses the same science of black and well pretty much anything
2: in addition to the apples we've also and garlic we've applied the same technique to some beetroot so this is actually so this has been in the 60 degree cupboard exactly but you can see by the texture it's more of a sort of fibrous pulp so that's basically um an old dish we had on we juiced the beetroots to make a glaze I was
1: gonna say this is like Mm. at the end of the juicer you know when you is that what that is exactly that oh yeah
2: we just basically did the same process Mm. and it's got a really interesting flavor as that smoky yeah
1: and a little tart very tart
0: so so that was one thing like I was challenged Dickie to do is like zero waste yeah so if we're juicing beetroots what do you do with the dry pulp that comes out the side and it
1: does always seem like a waste. Does, yeah, <laughs> You're yeah. like, all that stuff I should be able to do something exactly. Like
0: that. Well, so we reckon like something like infuse like the cream for an ice cream or something. like that. We black. made an ice cream out of it, didn't we? Yeah, it's almost like it tasted like like a chocolatey ice cream. If yeah.
1: yeah, these things are all, they all have a kind of dark chocolatey mm. edge to them, yeah, don't yeah. they? It's really yeah. interesting. I don't think you'd know
0: that was beetroot, though. No, I don't. I'm think you, you. I, I mean. No. Next on Dickie's menu is a large vat of something which, to the uninitiated, does not look that appealing.
2: Tommy wanted to try making our own uh, miso, so we thought, well... Is that what this is? Yeah, so with a, with a slight variation, Platt so... squash peas. <laughs> <laughs> so rather than using rice and beans, we thought, well, what can we do to make it more sort of Yorkshire? So we thought, well, there's peas. a really good pea grower just down the road. So We got some of his dried peas and then some pale barley as well.
1: In place
2: what of kind rice. of peas? Like green peas? Or yeah. like Yeah, like green peas but obviously yeah. dried so that they're not as green. Um, so yeah, and then uh, pearl barley, again, local organic Love farmer. Pearl barley. So steamed that uh, and inoculated that with the koji spores, uh, fermented that for a couple of days and then added that to the, the steamed peas.
1: Oh, holy moly! <laughs> so
2: that's how oh my
1: god, that's fantastic! Uh, it is like miso it's got that shot like real deep umami mm. savoriness that you is inescapably like if i didn't know i, I just would think that was a, a barley miso yes a white miso or a barley miso that's what it tastes like mm-hmm. but then there's another element to it again a little bit vegetal yeah that's the peas isn't it yeah and again
2: like that's the first incarnation but we could definitely mm. put beetroot or Shit. garlic or even black apples through it why Mapple.
1: not that'd be great with mm. some like hard grilled mackerel or something like
0: oily fish i'm delighted that Andy is finding all of this so fascinating but then i kind of knew a bit of theater and some surprises would have hit the spot she's been spoiled after years on great british menu i've even got a little surprise tasting experience for andy later on too as we weave the miso into our petty fours later on we clear the tables and get down to talking about all things food as andy walks me through her brand new cookbook how she got the job on Great British Menu, and of course, she reveals her own favorite seasonal ingredients. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you regularly listen to the show, you'll know how passionate I am about proper stock. Without good stock, you can't make great recipes. And True Foods make the best stock on the market, bar none. True Foods stocks and sauces are used in a lot of Michelin-style restaurants up and down the country and worldwide. So if you're looking for an ingredient to elevate your cooking to a whole new level, head on over to truefoodsltd.com and use the discount code seasoned10 to get 10% off your first order. When it comes to kitchen appliances at home, Miele is my number one choice. Their products are so advanced that I can do the same as I do in my restaurant, but at home. I can do everything like steaming, dehydrating, I can sous vide, for example, which means I can cook delicious food for my family, but I can also develop great recipes from the comfort of my home too. I recently spent a day at the Miele Experience Centre in London, trying out loads of the kitchen appliances to see which would work best for my family and for my cooking style. If you're looking to upgrade your appliances or redesigning your kitchen, I would highly recommend checking out the products for yourself at one of the Miele Experience Centres across the UK or attend a kitchen discovery class. Or of course, head to Miele.co.uk. Now back to the episode where earlier on I gave Andy Oliver a tour of my farm and she got to sample some unusual blackened ingredients and before we get stuck into our chat my sous chef Alice has brought some tasty delights to keep us going. Oh Alice is here.
1: Oh hello the famous Alice. Oh wow yes your reputation precedes you. Oh, So I thought
3: you might like to have a little tasty bite always that's all right what's happening on here so you've been hearing a lot about our blackens products so the black and squash miso that you were talking about earlier on what we've done here is make a noisette and then put the miso through it so it kind of cooks out and caramelizes the miso another little bit and then you get that sweet and salty flavor from it as well so we've baked that into a financier for you there's a barley i'm always a one biter personally there's a barley and honey glaze over the top of it and some fresh hazelnut as well just to finish So I always describe oh. it to people, if they like sweet and salty popcorn, it's that kind of yes, satisfying exactly oh my level God. of sweet and salty in there. That is so good. Mm. And a little nuttiness. Mm. Mm.
0: These delicious bites are literally that. One bite and they're gone. But that miso packs such a flavour hit that you'll be satisfied long afterwards.
1: Oh, my God. Quite savoury. It's but yeah. Gorgeous. I think that's another, yeah. And
3: in the past, we've, we've had kind of a mushroom financier on as well that, again, played with that sweet and savoury. Oh, my God, I love
1: that. I love things that straddle that world between yeah. this, because I, I don't have a massively sweet tooth. Mm-hmm. So something like that, where you, as it gets sweet, mm. this big savory hit kind of washes in afterwards. It's absolutely beautiful.
0: I feel like when sweet things have a bit of salt to them and a mm. bit of saviness,
1: you can just eat more of them, yeah. which is always Which pleasant. is always <laughs> <laughs> desirable. <laughs> yeah. That's gorgeous. Thank you pleasure. so much. Pleasure, pleasure. Thank you, Alice. Oh my God, that's good. Mm. That's really good. It tastes like your food. Yeah. I know your food. Tommy I've been eating food for quite some years now I mean how long ago so when I started Great British Menu I was you did the first series was that your first that was your second one my second
0: one so Wimbledon would have been the first one right that you did Wimbledon
1: was the first one I did it was the second one you did yeah yeah that's right I I was telling Kerry who came up with me (laughs) your story about the fact that you'd really charmed Prue the year before.
0: Yeah, Prue gave, Prue, you, you'd give me really good marks. So, <laughs> like, I remember getting the marks I was like, she gave me like a 10 for my fish, 10 for my mane, 10 for my dessert. And I was like, God, oh, Prue Leaf is, she, she's wrapped around my finger. She loves <laughs> my food. Went back the next, and I saw this thing and it's like, oh, Prue Leaf has left and gone to Baja." It's <laughs> I was like,
1: damn! <laughs> what? walked so and he was like, who's she? I was like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> I loved your food immediately.
0: Yeah, uh, I was. Yeah, luckily, what I could just do with Andy and Prue on the same. And G-G you'd be panel. sorted. Yeah. Right? <laughs> How did that come about then? How did you get that job?
1: I don't even really know. It was so out of the blue. Mm. I was. Um, I was cooking in a uh, pub, uh, uh, the pub that we used to uh, co-run mm. in um, homerton called Jackdaw and Star and I got a call saying, um, we want to talk to you about being a guest judge. And I had been a guest judge on a funny ITV judging uh, food show that they made years ago with um, Lloyd Grossman. Oh, really? And Lloyd Grossman (laughs) couldn't do one week. The sauce man. Yeah, the sauce dude. So they got me to go in and do a guest judging one week. And so then when Prue was going to leave, they said we should go and find Andy. So they came wow. and found me and took me out for lunch and said, oh, Prue's leaving, you know, do you, wanna, do you want her job? And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> you just offer me the job? <laughs> and I was like, yes, I think so. Went away and thought about it for a minute and thought, absolutely. Mm. And then went and had lunch with them. And, and it just all happened really, really quickly, actually. It happened within the space of about a week. And wow. next thing I you know, I was there.
0: Andy hasn't always been known for her food. She began as a singer in a band with well-known artist Nana Cherry and then went on to forge her own career too. But even then, food was a key component of her life.
1: It's kind of always been food and music for me. Do you know what I mean? The two th- I, f- I, f- I find the two things inextricably linked. Yeah. They come from the same place. Yeah, You know, if you are really cooking from your heart, and really doing things that matter to you. Yeah. That's when food is excellent yeah. and amazing. And music is exactly the same. So, all the time when we were on tour, you know, back in the day, me and Nana and, you know, the Rit Rick and Panic and all of that, we used to cook for people all the time. We were weird teenagers. You know, we'd have a party oh, yeah. and decide we were going to souse. You know, two kilos of mackerel. We're teenagers. Who does that? <laughs> Weird seventeen-year-olds, it's like we're making soused mackerel. There'll be potato salad, and there'll be there'll be some fabulous spring greens, and everybody else is wanting to drink cider and get pissed. Yeah, I mean, don't
0: we? Like, it's not the most rock and roll, not, like, is it?
1: Fried chicken and making rice and peas, and like, you know, in the early hip hop days, like Fab Five, Five Freddy and Futura and all those guys used to come to London and we would make them, we would cook for them all because they were on tour all the time and eating all this. Like, and, you know, yeah. back in the day, you couldn't really get great food when you were out. So they would like be out for months and desperate and they'd come to London. We'd go to the gig and then we'd go back to Nana's flat and make them like chicken and rice and peas and all the rest of it and stay up with them all night, like dancing and chatting rubbish. Do you know what I mean? Really? So, yeah, it was just thought it's always been a kind of part of the fabric of what, I, what I've done. You know, I can't, I don't remember not, you know, I was having dinner parties when I was like 12 at home, you know what I mean?
0: I was interested to know what sort of food Andy had grown up on and what our earliest influences were. So food at home that so I mean, growing up must have been heavily Caribbean influenced. Or, uh, yeah, or more, I mean. More, more localised than that
1: maybe. Yeah, and I lived in Cyprus when I was a kid as well. Oh really? Because so, my dad was in the RAF. So Cyprus was the first place I got properly interested. Mm. I think I was about eight. I went there when I was about six and I left when I was about nine. When I was about eight, I remember going to this restaurant and uh, we went there for the whole day. We were at the beach for the whole day and I saw somebody take the octopus and kill it. And then I went to the restaurant that night and it was on the menu. I was like, oh, (laughs) it was the first time it all added yeah. up. And I was like, that's really cool. <laughs> I just liked it. I just liked the sort of 360 degrees of yeah. it. There was that. And then my next door neighbour, Elena, she was my mate and her mum used to make halloumi and, and hang it on the washing line in tights. So we, I just remember running oh. around yeah. in their garden with these big balls of halloumi <laughs> <laughs> hanging off. <laughs> off the watching line. But it's like the, my first like, fascination with food things, I think, started when I was in Cyprus because there were all these amazing things going on all the time.
0: I sometimes try to guess what my guests will say when I ask about their favourite seasonal ingredients. But for Andy, I'm guessing it's something which isn't seasonal during the making a great British menu. She told me off mic that during this year's competition, she had to eat Hen of the Woods mushrooms in pretty much every episode. And that's enough to make even the most devoted fango off them. So what is Andy's favourite seasonal ingredient?
1: There's two twice a year when I get really excited. One is when wild garlic comes out. I mean, I, I, it's, I'm, I'm slightly embarrassed by how excited I get. I'm just like, what is the matter with you? But I just get really like, it's wild garlic time. I just, I love that it looks how it looks and then is so pungent. Yeah. Because it just doesn't look like it's going to do what it does. And I like that it's sort of in disguise. And I <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm, it's hiding in plain sight. It's hiding it? in yeah. plain
1: sight. I did, you know, I did, it was something I discovered later as well. You know, I didn't know yeah. about it when I was a kid, kind of yeah. thing. So I love wild garlic and I love all the different iterations and, and manifestations of it. Like, you know, your gorgeous little capers and the mm. pickles.
0: You probably wouldn't want to go to a wild garlic restaurant on like a first date, would you?
1: Maybe not the first moment, but I'm way beyond that. Yeah. I'm way beyond caring. Or
0: <laughs> well, maybe you find someone who's got something in common
1: with you. Yeah, do lot, you know what I mean? Of Some a garlic enthusiast. <laughs> And then the other time I get really excited is um, blood oranges uh, because I just find them so beautiful. Yeah. Again, it's like just looks like an orange. And then you cut it open, woo! It's a whole party going on. In there. <laughs> I'm like, wow! Every single time it gets me. Every single time, and I do love rhubarb.
0: Good. There we go. We've got the answer. But no, but blood oranges are really interesting because like you say, they're not just a gimmick though. They taste incredible. They're
1: incredible. The intensity yeah. of it is so wonderful.
0: Sometimes you see these sort of exotic fruits and they're a certain like shape or size or whatever, or a different colour. And you're like, oh, that'd be cool. And they taste nothing. nothing. Whereas a blood orange is like, it never lets you down. It's no. like the best orange you can eat. And it's funky.
1: And it's pretty, it's beautiful, yeah. it tastes incredible. It's like more orange than an orange, yeah. And uh, it just looks absolutely astonishing. I love it. And you know, it just even the juice like, you know, just to drink mm. the juice or in a dressing or in a sauce, mm. or you know what I mean? It, I just find it endlessly wonderful.
0: I totally agree with you on that because my cooking is all about what we can grow here, and, et yeah. and I do sometimes very occasionally you think, oh God, I'd love to be able to cook with like a, a blood orange or
1: something. Right.
0: So when I go to someone else's restaurant and they have like exotic produce in it, and you're like, oh, that is, that a- would open <laughs> up. We're, we'll go back and make some more black uh, <laughs> apples. Um, but yeah, there are certain things which are just amazing, aren't they? And yeah. They're just wonderful.
1: forever wonderful, forever mm. magical. Because the thing I love about Cooking is that. Some things in their natural state are just stunning, and you don't need mm. to do anything to them. And then some things, like, this is why I love your, um, this, all this blackening thing, because that, that alchemy, that magic, it's just forever exciting mm. to me. Mm. That you can take something that tastes like the Bramley, and then you end up with that syrup or that toffee, fudgy, yep. black apple. I mean, it's just wild to me, that.
0: Next week, Andy is set to announce more details on her upcoming and very exciting cookbook. But while the details are cylinder wraps, she did offer a little glimpse into what it was like putting a book together. So how have you found writing a cookbook then?
1: I like it. I've really enjoyed it. It's funny because I've been talking to quite a lot of people and they go, oh, the writing bit's really hard, isn't it? I'm like, no, I loved it. I love the writing bit. The hardest part for me is um, being methodical.
0: Yes, yeah, the recipes. I... <sighs> The, the writing's easy, I fi- you, know, and then you
1: And then you, and you're like, OK, I've written it all down, and then you get slightly distracted and you think, shit, what did I just put in there? <laughs> you
0: know but I think the other thing is, it's all very well writing a recipe for yourself to follow. Yeah. But like it's... Um, for other people. I, I, I realise how also how much when you communicate, especially as a chef, you communicate with the other chefs yeah. in your team and you speak in almost a shorthand. Yeah. And that doesn't make any sense to anybody. To anybody else. Yeah
1: doesn't make any sense. So yeah, trying to make yourself understood. And also, I think with any writing, whether it's a cookbook or a novel or music or whatever it is, it, it has to have the kernel essence of truth. Mm. So you have to really mean it. Yeah. I'm very precise about language. Yeah, I'm very specific about the words that I use because I really enjoy words. Mm. I enjoy speech and the written word. And I like the, I like the fact that you know you can have find six ways to say you're tired you yeah, know what i mean yeah. you can be but weary they do, they or exhausted mean, or you're but they tired mean different things though don't they yes they mean slight, the nuance yeah. of it i love that mm. so I, i've actually really enjoyed the writing part of the book and i think i'm going to write quite a lot more actually because i enjoy it's like a new meditative thing mm. and i felt like i discovered a new way to feel peaceful I was quite lucky in that it was lockdown that's what uh, that's why I had time for a start So
0: so it took you a few years then to this yeah, two
1: years, two years yeah well. two years ago I went to Antigua and on a like in between the lockdown first and second lockdown we went to Antigua It was like quick we can get out quick go 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 yeah, go, yeah, go. Yeah. got on the plane got to Antigua and then when we got off the plane they said oh we've changed travel advice and now that you're here you have to stay and we'll be like oh no what a terrible (laughs) nightmare what an awful awful nightmare you sure i don't have to go back can't go back to hackney so i was really happy and we'd rented this beautiful house anyway so we were there for three months or something wow and i basically wrote 90 percent of the book then
0: so i mean i'm really looking forward to to reading your book because it's it's i think i'd learn a lot from it obviously um It's just a type of food that I don't know a lot about.
1: Yeah, I learned a lot writing it. I learned a lot writing it. And now I want to do more like it's just it's so fascinating to me because so much of the food in the Caribbean, it's the influences come from everywhere because of, you know, as I say in the book, there's a dark shadow in there because a lot of the food comes from colonial Mm. passage through the islands. You know, so there's Portuguese, there's uh, and then there's also food that came from other people that were indentured and forced to go to the Caribbean. So there's Indian and there's Chinese, mm. you know, there's Portuguese, there's French, oh, wow. yeah. there's British, there's Irish. There's anything you care to mention really has come through Caribbean. It's truly a global cuisine. Yeah. It's quite interesting. So. um so uh, examining that and realising, people talk about the Caribbean like it's one place and it's many mm. places with many, and each island has its own national dish. We all have our different ways of doing things. And then of course, underneath that, families have their own way of doing things. So someone would be like, that's not how you make curry goat. It's like, that's how I make curry goat. Yeah. All
0: right. I've seen it on Great British Menu when we've had uh, Caribbean chefs on and they've been, I've been doing the veteran chef's job and uh, they start describing it to me and telling me what it is. And you just go, that's not what that I'm is. Like, that's a It's actually called something else. <laughs> uh, where, where I'm from, we call it. <laughs> yeah, no,
1: absolutely. It's fascinating. So I, um, so I learned a lot because I started examining, you know, looking at Barbados and Jamaica and St. Lucia and St. Kitts and Nevis mm. and how different islands do different things. And so I feel like it's like the tip of the iceberg, this mm. book. And then it, obviously it then connects to the African diaspora in a bigger way anyway, like Southern American cooking, Mm. you know, food from right across the African continent, food, uh, our soul food here, you know what I mean? It's like the mix up of those things and the way those things marry together. Like I discovered the other day that in Benin, they call okra gumbo which, of course, is the New Orleans oh, okra yes. soup. Yeah, good you know? And soup, I was like, yeah. oh, that's where it comes from. Never, it never even occurred to me that that's where the word came. The, the word came from Benin. So it came from African, enslaved Africans being brought over there and they were cooking the food that they knew. Yeah. And then there's a dish in Antigua called funji, which is uh, like our form of polenta. It's like a corn it's like a, And you, you, you kind of make it stiffer and you make a ball out of it and you eat it with stews and soups. But then I discovered the other day that funji is an Angolan word ah. and they make funji in Angola. So that's obviously how it got to Antigua. I didn't know that until quite recently.
0: What's the difference between funji and cuckoo?
1: They're very similar. Cuckoo is um, Barbados, basically. Uh, okay. It's kind of the same thing. Yeah. It's like cuckoo, fungi, turn cornmeal. In Jamaica, they call it turn cornmeal. Uh, and they're like, why do you keep eating that? We give that to the pigs. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, because it's delicious, OK? <laughs> so <laughs> different islands will yeah, yeah. like hero something and, and raise something up, but another island will be like, nah. Wow. Like ackee, we don't eat ackee in Antigua. People can't be bothered. It's, have you ever seen a fresh ackee? So it's it's a mad looking fruit, right? It's like the, it's like a sort of two handed thing, and it looks like scrambled egg, and it's got like these weird big black seeds in it. Most of the fruit you can't really eat. It looks so like have, scrambled egg. Yeah. Or it, inside it. Yes, it looks like a sort of funny, like almost like a piece of scrambled egg. You know when scrambled egg's yeah. gone a bit further.
3: Yeah.
1: That's what it looks like, wow. and then inside there, there's a little piece of. It looks like red paper. And that is completely toxic, and you cannot eat it.
3: How do people find it? The only out we people, well,
1: <laughs> obviously trial and error, but the only people that can be bothered to clean it and do it are Jamaicans. <laughs> Everybody else is like, give it to the birds. No one eats it in Antigua. So my cousin, who is who is Jamaican, who lives in Antigua, she gets all the fresh ackee for like five dollars because nobody else wants it. Wow. She's like, oh my god, in, and in Jamaica it's like gold dust, and everybody's really excited. In Antigua they're like, just take it, man. Wow. So it's, it's fascinating to me.
0: So when is the book out?
1: It's out on the 27th of April. 27th of April. And what's it called? It's called The Pepper Pot Diaries.
0: Before we finished, I wanted to return to Great British Menu. After all, my head chef, Will, narrowly missed out on having a dish at the banquet. And while I get to see a lot of the competition as a veteran chef, I'd be keen to know if Andy has any tips or advice for young chefs who are striving to win the competition. You've got to bring the flavour to, wow, Andy Oliver, that's what you've got to do. Do you think so? Yeah, I think so. I think you're an absolute flavour gangster. I think, <laughs> I, if anybody does anything slightly bland, you just like... <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know what it is? For me, again, it's about truth. So when people, what happens with people with great British menu, because they find it quite intimidating because it's been there for so long and yeah. so many of the chefs have grown up watching it and they get to it and they start thinking, how can I make the most exciting thing in the world? And it's like, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't try to make the most exciting thing in the world. Try to make the most delicious thing in the world. Mm. Try to make the thing that makes you happy. And that will bear itself out on the plate and in the competition, don't you think?
0: I totally. uh, You're right on the truth thing as well because I think not only is it obviously a competition that you want to win, but it's also a platform to express yourself on and which ultimately you can see that a lot of chefs, myself included, it's been a great sort of platform to to further your career. And I think uh, if you're nervous and a bit, worried and you go in in yourself a bit. You're not going to put your best foot forward. And
1: and I think everybody's going to be nervous Mm. going into Great Beach Menu. So if you are doing something you believe in Mm. and that you really genuinely care about, that will bear you through the nerves. And once you start cooking, you can see the chefs that yeah. do that, can't you? When they start cooking, they're like, oh, okay. You and you know, they're like, oh no, I know what I'm doing. I'm doing my thing. And you can see the chefs that are making things that are so far outside their comfort zone that it doesn't really make sense for them to be doing it, you know? And I, I think they should all need to take a leaf out of your book, Tommy, practice, 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 practice yeah. and do do stuff that makes sense to you. I mean, I think also the other thing that happens is sometimes with Great British Menu, a chef comes on and they kind of got it a bit upside downy and they uh, go home quite early and then they go away, they work out how to do it and they come back mm. the next year and you're like, aha, oh, you you get s- it now you now you've got it, you now, now you know what you need to achieve. And it's like finding that perfect balance between telling the story, making something delicious, innovative, and it means makes sense to you. And if you hit all those things, you're going to do well in the competition. You know, I don't... It's really important to me, actually, that people know that nobody's ever unduly harsh on the chefs. Like, you know, sometimes you see all some people, they're like, oh, they're being mean to little Timmy. It's like nobody's being... Nobody's there to be horrible to anybody. We want these chefs to be uplifted and to feel good. And, you know, your experience, actually, Tommy, I cite you a lot because I think that One of the things I'm really proud of with the competition is that it's really got chefs up and down the country being proud of where they're from. Mm. They don't feel like they've got to go to London to cook. They don't feel like they've got to go and cook in the Savoy or you know, cooking wherever to actually make their mark or feel excited. Mm. They feel they can stay where they're from Mm. or go to live in wherever they feel like living and really work with local producers and the environs and that they live in. I'm not saying terroir because and they can make beautiful things and make their mark. You know, Mm. it's not a big island, Britain. You Mm. know what I mean? It's like you can do that. And I think that Great British menu has really been encouraged chefs to do that. And you're a perfect example of look what you're doing in this beautiful yeah, place and the incredible food you're making. I not agree more with that.
0: Andy and I chatted for hours. In fact, I noticed a few odd looks in our direction from members of the team. And that's because it was almost time for service by the time we stopped chatting and started to clear away all the microphones. Andy, thank you so much for coming up. I really appreciate it. I'm really happy
1: to be here. I am. It's bloody lovely. Is that blossom coming out on that tree?
0: It's just starting to bud, isn't
1: it? I'm really happy to be here and I'm so excited about dinner.
0: Oh, everyone's excited to cook for you. It's going to be be fun. Yay me! (laughs) Next week, it's our final episode of the season. Week 10. I can't believe it. And to mark it, we're doing something a little different. I'm packing my bags with some seasonal produce and paying a visit to one of my favorite chefs in the region. I'm gonna go see his restaurant and see if I can pick up one or two seasonal tips from him as well as sharing some of my own. And we will be reflecting on the last 10 weeks and looking ahead to what the summer has in store. See you next week. For more information about Seasoned, check out my website, www.tommybanks.co.uk or check us out on social media. If you've enjoyed the episode, please leave us a positive rating and a review. It would mean an awful lot to me, and it really helps to support us and get this podcast off the ground. Most importantly, though, tell your friends. Tell someone else you've enjoyed it. Maybe they'll join us on our journey, too. Seasoned is a What's the Story podcast. It's hosted by me, Tommy Banks, and produced by Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis.